welcome to this week's episode of Floor 9. I am your host, Scott Elcherson, and joined with me today are two very special guests. Uh, we have our very own Chief Brand Safety Officer, Joshua Locock, as well as Nick Johnson, the Editor-in-Chief of Axios. So gentlemen, welcome to Floor 9. Thank you. Hello. Hello. Glad to have you guys here. So before we dive right into uh, the podcast, um, how about you guys give us a little bit of a background on yourself? So Nick, we'll start with you. Um, just you know, a, a brief background on yourself and uh, what you do over at Axios. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Thanks for being here. Uh, thanks for having me here. This is awesome. Uh, I'm Nick Johnson. I'm the editor-in-chief of Axios. We're about a 18-month, two-year-old new media company. Uh, my background is I've been a traditional journalist my whole life. I was a reporter at the Washington Post and at Bloomberg. Uh, I covered the Hill. I covered Congress. I covered campaigns. I covered the White House. And then over that time, sort of realized that a lot of the way I was delivering information didn't make sense for my readers. And so I was involved in some news startups at Bloomberg uh, and then was now at a real news startup where if you're familiar with Axios style, very much a uh, style of smart brevity. I think we've, we've trademarked about how to get people smart faster on topics that matter in a way that's really sort of digital native and mobile friendly and something I think about a lot, sort of our style, how best to deliver exactly what our readers need to know. Fantastic. And Joshua, how about yourself? I'm the, as you introduced, the Global Brand Safety Officer for UM. I'm also the Chief Digital Officer. My focus is showing clients spend more money in digital media because that's where audiences are, but also making sure our clients are protected and don't get exposed to dangerous and unsafe content. Fantastic. And I think we have the the perfect mix here today uh, as our topic will be discussing all about the future of news. It's been a you know pretty widespread topic, I would say, in today's traditional media. And I'm excited to have you both on to uh, you know really break down this trend. So I think we should just start you know right with the first question. What are some of the current issues that are facing news today? And Nick, we'll start with you. Yeah, I think one of the big things that we looked at and that sort of we're drowning in information. We're being bombarded constantly. Everyone has cell phones. I've said smartphones where there's a Twitter notifications and push notifications and Facebook and you can talk to Siri and learn anything you wanted to know in the world. And so how can you cut through sort of all of that and deliver information that's sort of both like sort of efficient and relevant on it? And sort of my thinking on that was, like the way a lot of people deliver news is just the way we delivered it in the 1850s, right? You know, the uh, news story today is no different than what the AP would have written, you know, during the Civil War. And now that the Internet exists, sort of like how should you blow up that model? Sort of how can you get sort of really efficient and sort of cut right to the chase? And you can always link out and provide all sorts of background. You don't have to do that. And so that's, I think, what we've really sort of tried to do is figure out a way how when people are bombarded by information, how can you cut through that and just as efficiently as possible get people the information they know? Like the one stat I would throw out, like if you look at how much time people spend on a website when they click on a link, it's like 15 seconds, right? That's how much time people are giving you. And that's not enough time for a thousand words. So knowing that that's how much time people have, sort of how can you inform them in that tiny little window? And that's what I'm sort of hyper-focused on. Right, definitely, and that comes down to just in general, like the the, the overall intention span of our users across yeah. any platform just seems to be decreasing dramatically. And I'll, I'll give you guys a shout out. I'm a big reader of Axios, and the uh, and the brevity is great, and you know, like that helps you with my job day to day. So uh, that's fantastic. But Joshua, what about yourself? What are some challenges that that you're seeing out there in the market? I mean, I approach it from the uh, advertising side of things. I think 
The biggest challenge we have is it's getting tougher and harder to monetize news services. And what I genuinely worry about is how do you fund quality and important journalism in a world where it's a lot easier to create sensationalist fake content and generate ads on those rather than focus on quality journalism and get brands to engage in advertise around those environments, given particularly the news category is so unpredictable. Quality journalism is important. In-depth or short or abbreviated stories are all important, but how do you encourage advertisers to spend money there when sometimes the content can make it a dangerous place for brands? That is, I think, exactly what we're going to be talking about today later on in the podcast. But definitely, and it's like, any, I think even if we look at uh, just kind of like like the model that's been set up with, you know, social media, specifically with a lot of adults, you know, 67% of adults today are actually getting their news from social media. Really, how the information is delivered through them can be difficult as, in a sense, they say publishers get paid for clicks. That seems to be like the running model out there today. So how do we uh, help steer the conversation away from just clicks? And then, like you said, back to the, the Capital Day journal for like like the quality content that's out there very excited to see how that like that comes out so quickly let's just define the differences between fake news disinformation and misconceptions out there today nick as as the editor-in-chief at axios how do you define those three terms i mean there's there's some like i mean fake news there's like there's malicious intent there are people who spread sort of actual falsehoods i mean it gets it gets interesting to the point about like people chasing clicks and if you look at all the horrible things that the algorithms encourage like for like they driving emotion it's sort of like it's scandal you won't believe what just happened here and like and like false things can sort of draw in people i think we saw that uh particularly on facebook sort of during the 2016 election so like the like malicious falsehoods i think is the is like the the, the biggest problem and, and sort of like there's an element of that not an element of that, but I think sort of sliding down the scale of horribleness, you get to sort of not malicious falsehoods, but sort of like actual sort of uh, spinning stories in a way that is not necessarily false, but um, sort of not respective of the truth. I think what is really refreshing, I think, about being in the news business now is that I think what happened during 2016 is people realize these are things like news consumers started to realize that actually there's a lot of bad actors out there and there's a lot of sources that can't be trusted. And there's a lot of people sort of who are lying or obfuscating these kinds of things. And so there was a real desire for sort of newsworthy, uh, for news brands that people can trust. Like Axios is the name worthy. And we go around saying like, you know, it's Greek for worthy. We say like, we want to be a, a news source that is worthy of your time, attention and trust. And I get a lot of emails from readers saying like, this is exactly what I was looking for. I'm, I'm like readers are becoming smarter and looking for uh, sources that they can trust because they know that some of these social feeds are so polluted by bad actors uh, and bad information. And I think like brands should react to that. Like it should be less about just sort of like volume of clicks because you can get clicks for any kind of garbage and more about sort of quality of engagement. You know, are people actually paying attention and are they sort of being deliberate about this? Like we see this in our stats with how people enter and consume Axios content. If they come in through social media, they're often just there for, you know, even less than that 15 seconds. But if they've come here deliberately through our newsletters or maybe through searching for a topic, they'll be far more committed to the content and they'll, they'll, they'll stay longer and engage more. Joshua? I dislike the term fake news, and it's interesting because the UK government's actually banned the use of the term fake news in any government you know, documentation as recently as I think in the last three or four days. And it really gets back to what Nick was talking about, which is disinformation and misinformation. And we need to be clear on that. Like fake news is an easy term to label something as, but doesn't actually clarify the intent behind it. 
and you know journalism is never going to be perfect there will be accidents and mistakes so making it clear the difference between disinformation and misinformation and then calling politicians out when they say something so exactly what are you saying is an organization engaged in propaganda or is it engaged in you know misrepresentation of the facts accidentally and a lot of the issues that we have with brands and keeping brands safe and protected online it's actually those organizations that are engaged in misinformation and the deliberate publishing of false and misleading news stories those are the ones that represent the greatest risk to society and on social media those are the ones that seem to get the inordinate amount of clicks and attention because they're designed to force a reaction right yeah they can they know how to game the algorithms in a sense and they know in a sense what people would react to is actually hard to compete against because of this how rapidly that information is spread online if you know if, if we look at the statistics by a current mit study it says that false news cascades or diffuses between a hundred and a thousand people whereas the truth really diffuses more than a thousand people so the saying that false falsehoods are diffusing faster than the truth is uh, an interesting kind of way to look at it as, as, as why this information spreads faster than the truth. And it seems like the people that are spreading it aren't actually looking for the truth. So it brings me to my question of, you know, is there a responsibility on us as the users to become our own gatekeepers to actually search out and validate these news sources? Or does this become a responsibility of the news publishers themselves to better curate this content? I, I could jump in on that. We just, we wrote about this. Our CEO, Jim Vandehei, recently gave a speech in Wisconsin, which we turned into an Axios AM newsletter post last week, specifically on that. And it, he's like, he, he disagreed that there's a responsibility for users to kind of interrogate those sources. I mean, there's a responsibility for everyone. There's a responsibility for politicians shouldn't go around saying fake news. It's damaging to the truth. And readers, like consumers of news, should be smart, should interrogate their sources, should be vigilant for these kinds of things, shouldn't reward these peddlers of garbage, you know, with their attention. And then at some point, there will probably be some kind of responsibility that lies with the platforms to sort of be more aware of this. Because, like, whether they like it or not, you know, regulators, certainly the United States, are beginning to pay attention to this a lot. And there's an opportunity like that could come in the future. I mean, probably not imminently, but the more this happens where there and I think the platforms are open to this. They're saying they're open to regulation sort of on these kinds of things to so say have to have some sort of responsibility for the for the content. I mean, we're seeing it just this week. Twitter is starting to take down a bunch of accounts that peddle in this kind of falsehoods. And so I think they are starting to realize that they also bear a responsibility to it. Yeah, I agree. I think the the, edu- the consumer education part's important, and I've been recently been doing touring high schools because my son's about to enter high school here, and there's a lot of signs up in libraries now that teach children how to discern fake and false news and misinformation and social media posts and the like. I think there's a broader question for the platforms, which is how do you issue a correction? Because the nature of the web is it's a democratic publishing environment. Anyone can register a domain name, start publishing content. We've all got the freedom of post whatever we want in social media. If something's posted and is shared and goes viral, how do the platforms actually correct that spread of misinformation? How do you tell people that they've clicked on something that's wrong or false or they've shared something that's wrong and false? And ideas that I've always had in the back of my head is because regulation's not going to solve it, is do you actually force people, do you log people out automatically from social media? And so if they spread fake news or misinformation and when they log back in, they get the warning or disclaimer because that's what historically news organizations have been good at publishing corrections. The platforms themselves aren't good at publishing corrections. So Axios, CNN, anyone could publish something accidentally, incorrectly. You, As journalists, you always take it on yourself to publish a correction because you see that as an important part of your responsibility and you 
ethics and belief in quality. But how do you make sure that message gets out? I don't think the industry solved for that yet. Yeah, that's an interesting point because when you, I think when you look at just the everyday average consumer, they aren't like you said, like they aren't journalists and they aren't willing to take the time to like correct those mistakes or whatever they might be. Like I think they're more focused on getting those clicks, getting that virality, and kind of in a sense like increasing their overall like social clout. Yeah, uh, like that, like that seems like what's more important than actually spreading something that's true or correcting something that's true because it's in a way it's not as it's not, it's not as fun. It's not it's not, it's not as tangible it's not as juicy yeah and who scrolls back through their feed after three or four days to see if anything they shared has now been corrected <laughs> yeah <People don't. laughs> nobody yeah. Yeah. Answer yeah. That for you. <laughs> yeah not a not a single person but so knowing that um it seems like curation has been a a new topic or it's it's back in the news, especially with Apple. They just kind of release a whole inside look with the New York Times on how Apple News is being curated and their kind of their philosophies on content. And Nick, I'm curious to know from you, like, what is Axios strategy for content? How are you guys looking at like hand, hand curated content versus, you know, using maybe some AI assisted algorithms to help you publish I mean, we're a, a small startup, so we don't have all the fancy robots that um, giant media companies have. But I think Apple's a really interesting example in that it is humans, for the most part, uh, that they have a group of editors who sort of select and verify uh, the content that they showcase to their readers. And I think that's, that's, I think that's what separates them quite a bit from certainly the way sort of Google News or the way Facebook does it, where it is all robots and the robots aren't super awesome at discerning fact from fiction and sort of reliable source from unreliable source. I don't think the robots, it, robots are a ways away from sort of figuring that kind of stuff. I think that's what makes Apple News very interesting. And just a different, a very different news experience as far as sort of how they work with news organizations like us to sort of highlight um, different content that we have. And also sort of they become sort of a gatekeeper uh, and able to verify that. And since they do have former journalists, they sort of know that, oh, okay, this done by the Washington Post, this is legitimate, this is a valid story, they have good journalism practices, while versus, you know, if it's a, a fake news website that a Google algorithm may not understand, like an, an editor would. And that's how, like, we curate on Axios. And so we train a bunch of young journalists. They, like, do the things that we can trust. We interrogate sources. We interrogate bylines. We make sure things are correct. Um, and so because we have that kind of human expertise behind it, sort of we're not going to get tricked by fake news. Algorithms are a mixed blessing, aren't they? Because they can trap people in a filter bubble and they can also let people be exposed to new thinking and ideas. And that's a trade-off. Like I love Apple News. I love Flipboard. There used to be an app out there called Zite. All of those things encourage discovery of new content, new voices and new journalism content. And to be honest, that's one of the ways I discovered Axios. It surfaced through Flipboard. Oh, awesome. Yeah, so, and Flipboard has uh, human editors as well. Yeah, but you need, like, the journalism process requires human control. It requires discretion and thinking and understanding the role that r reporting has in society and the implication it can have on people and the decisions and opinions they make. And I think that's what we forget is that the, the humans are an important and integral part of the process. And that's why brands like Axios or The Post or The Journal have value because they've got that heritage and legacy of people with editorial decisions making choices about what people need to see and what is important for holding you know, a torch on society and standing up for what's right. Algorithms don't do that very well. Yeah. And it's interesting that you know, like we kind of like take a look at how 
news is spread and it's like you take a look at like twitter or facebook or even youtube and how they spread their content like they aren't news publications in a sense like like this isn't their main goal to you know drive the truth it's to drive a click to drive the revenue which is you know how they're going to support like their business model so then it's interesting to see that you know if more and more consumers are, are going to be getting their content from these networks like is there a responsibility in a sense then for Facebook to become become more journalists, like, like hire more journalists to actually edit content, to like produce content? Because they say that like they're actually today hiring people for the, like kind of police the content, but it seems like they need to hire thousands more to police you know all the content out there. And but they would never they would never police for truth. I mean, they hire these people to get rid of obscenities and get rid of sort of racists and Nazis. They're not on there to figure out if someone is reporting about climate change or immigration issues correctly. And then when when they speak publicly, they're very adamant about being platforms first. And it's, they're not in the business of doing journalism. And they that that's perfectly fine. That's like – I think it's a, like journalists are in the business of doing journalism. And I think that's why it's – I get back to this point about sort of like the value of, an, of being engaged with a reader and that sort of a reader who just sort of stumbles upon you because an algorithm highlighted it in a social media feed isn't super valuable. What's more valuable for me as a journalist and I think what would eventually be valuable for, for someone who has a, works at a brand is sort of like a, a reader that made a dis, has, has a relationship with you. That's why I like newsletter subscribers mm-hmm. more than I like people who just sort of show up via Twitter because they've made an actual decision to say like, oh, I want to engage with Axios. I think Axios is good and it's trustworthy and I'm going to spend time with it instead of some emotionally driven like, ooh, click the angry face on Facebook because you saw this news feed. <laughs> Yeah, like there, like there's definitely something to, like you said, like somebody standing up and saying, "Hey, I'm interested in this content that's delivered to me directly," which is important because like they've taken like that first step in a sense to be like their own human content curator and subscribe to content like they want to actually like read and and participate in. I just wonder sometimes when you think about like like, like the larger audience is like how likelihood or how likely they are to you know put a hand up and say, "Hey, I, I'm looking for you know like more." more and better content and more quality content out there rather than just letting it just be fed to them because it's more convenient. I think it's the platforms have to take more responsibility for downranking inappropriate, unhealthy content that has harmful and negative effects on people and society. And this gets into sort of this constant dilemma that the platforms at least have is they equate freedom of speech, which is anybody can publish anything and we're not going to take anything down. And that the, the challenge with facebook and twitter is that freedom of speech on those platforms gives people an inordinate amount of reach and they need to take steps to sort of gate that ability to get freedom of reach if the content is harmful and hurtful and that's where like you know the platform the industry's agonized over it in the past several months when you know alex jones and the like was taken down off twitter and facebook and all of those sorts of spaces and that's where like historically, I could never walk into a newspaper and demand to be on the front page or walk into NBC and go, I want some airtime because of freedom of speech. But somehow we've got it in our head because these platforms exist that I should have freedom of speech on those platforms and I should have freedom of reach and promotion and distribution of my content. I, I get back to the platforms have to take – yeah, they don't need to be journalists. Yes, they don't need to be hiring a whole bunch of journalists. That's a separate discipline and a skill set they don't have. They absolutely need to be exercising editorial control about what gets promoted on their platforms. Otherwise, they should be held liable for how that content gets distributed, used, and acted upon. They don't want to do that. 
That's expensive. I know it's expensive. <laughs> and, it, and, it, and it's a slippery slope once you kick Al- – I mean, and they know this. Once you kick Alex Jones off, okay, who else are you kicking off? Sort of where are you going to draw that line? And then you're in this business. You're in this business constantly fighting uh, between sort of partisan on both sides. I was like, okay, is this a, a good post or is this a bad post, right? I think this happened yesterday where one of these right-wing – uh, provocateurs, what is his name, Milo, posted something abhorrent about the uh, uh, the bombs that had been threat sent around. And so there was a huge controversy about – it was just on Instagram, huge controversy on Instagram, uh, or probably on Twitter about Instagram. Uh, why haven't they taken it down yet? Should they take it down? Do they have to take it down? And I think once you begin – this is why the this is why the platforms resisted this. You know, and recently, as last year, we interviewed Sheryl Sandberg and we asked her, you know, are you a publisher or a platform? And she's like, no, we're a platform. We hire engineers. We don't hire journalists. Because they know when they begin to make those kinds of decisions, they're like, it, you're down a, it's a slippery slope where you have a, where they'll, they eventually will wind up with the responsibility that I have on whatever publishes uh, on Axios, where I'm legally liable. You know, I could be sued for uh, libel or slander if I publish something awful. I, I agree. They want to avoid it. I think it's an unavoidable truth that they're going to have to face at some point in time. So I get that it's a slippery slope and it, puts them in the, you know, suddenly they do become media companies and they've been fighting for years to not be classified as a media organization. But they're providing access to an audience. They're broadcasting no different to traditional TV or radio to an audience. Decisions are being made. Those algorithms are being programmed. Someone's making an editorial decision about what gets prioritized by algorithms. Algorithms aren't neutral. There's human beings that's behind the authoring of those. So to say, for them to sort of, abdicate responsibility by going, hey, we're just a platform, we'll let the people decide, I don't think it's a reasonable you know, position for them to take longer term. I think that's why it's evolved so much. If you, we wouldn't be having this conversation 18 months ago about Alex Jones being kicked off on Twitter. Nobody got kicked off no, of correct. Twitter. And now, we're, now it is something that we have to talk about almost every day. Yeah, it's uh, an ever-changing landscape that I think we'll be closely monitoring as we uh, continue in, in, into 2019 and close out 2018. But I kind of want to shift gears here for a second and get into looking at maybe some new formats that you guys are keeping your eyes on when it comes to news. Like, obviously, Axios and e- email newsletters, like, that's huge. You know, podcasts are becoming more popular, uh, even like messaging and SMS. Like, are there any platforms or new ways to consume content that you guys are interested in or seeing, you know, kind of grow over like the past few months as uh, these greater debates about how news is delivered through algorithms uh, becomes, you know, more and more of a pressing topic and a matter that we need fixing? I get excited about messaging. Uh, I used to play with an app called Purple that delivered news via sort of a text message type experience. I think that's fascinating. I think the Snapchat Discover content is really interesting. There was a stat, kids, I think 13 to 18, were getting their news from Snapchat than any other news source. So telling stories in different ways on different environments. And because of the way Discover works, at least it's curated, professionally controlled. So I think that's interesting. But messaging is the one that's super exciting for me. The other one that I get a little bit excited about is uh, text-to-speech. So you mentioned podcasting, Mm -hmm. but there's so much great written content out there and I've been playing with the Amazon Poly service. And you go, is there a way for text-to-speech services to open up a whole lot more of the written word to an audio-type experience so that I can consume it anywhere, anytime without having to be tied to an internet connection? Yeah, no, that's awesome. that's awesome because like I like the idea of listening to articles because uh, similar to Nick, what you said previously about like these articles being you know a thousand words long, for me it's easier to just listen to it 
and I feel like I benefit more, you know, through a podcast, through like an audio text to speech, like transcription, because I, I can listen to that on my way to work. I can listen to it as I work. And I think for me, as a slow reader, it is an easier way to actually like consume news. And I believe uh, it was Google just came out with a new product that is helping publishers take their like their content and convert it to audio just for this express purpose. So I'm I'm very bullish on audio and as we are recording a podcast uh there might be some bias in that but <laughs> <laughs> I'm st- I'm a big believer in I mean newsletters. I just think that uh like I, it's, it's bizarre. Like someone mentioned to me the other day that we're in a golden age of newsletters, which seems mysterious to me because like the inbox is a piece of technology from probably the 1980s, if not the 1970s. But it's just such an effective way to sort of reach readers where they are. They can sort of fit it into their life. I mean, I live my life in my inbox, um, pushing them like 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 making them not they don't have to seek out content. You push it to them. And I think it's a great way, certainly the way we do it at Axios, where we sort of have dedicated newsletter writers and the, the newsletters come from their personal email addresses to really create a connection between the journalist and the, the reader about kind of what the writer's interests are and fascinations are and have them be their guide to sort of what's happening. The bit I like about newsletters, and it's similar to podcasts, is it's probably the two remaining media formats where there's time for long considered thought and opinion, where the... T- you know, it's not like the homepage where you're constantly on pressure to update it, you know, as soon as something breaks. A newsletter goes out a certain time. It has a publishing schedule just like newspapers used to do. And the teams can think about the content. And there's a finite amount of content you can produce. It's right. like a newsletter, you, could, you can't write a 150,000-word newsletter. You can <laughs> limit the amount of content on there. You can't make a six-hour podcast. Like you have to be considered and thoughtful about the content. And that encourages better quality of content production and for audiences, more thoughtful, you know, reflection on the content. Joshua, I totally agree with that. Interestingly enough, our research team over at Magna Global in partnership with the lab and startup Check have recently published a new media trial stating that many consumers view unsafe ad placement as an intentional endorsement of negative content. So as brands, a lot of this content is programmatically distributed, which doesn't give you a lot of control over where your ads show up. And some in some cases, it does show up next to not brand safe content. And as a brand, you don't have much control over that, but this, like, the consumers don't care. They're still going to blame it on you, kind of in a sense, as an endorsement of this content. Uh, whereas if we look to these new business models, whether that's newsletters, podcasts, you know, it, it gives brands an opportunity uh, to have more control and align themselves with the properly curated content. So... With that, I'll, I'll I'll end us here on on one question: What happens to news as social media is is becoming a more and more toxic environment? I mean, I'm, I'm curious to know from you guys if there's any interesting new business models that could help you know solve this toxicity issue. Um, you know, like where are all these consumers going to go? Like, do we think that's going to they're, they're going to pour into more newsletters? You know, more into this kind of like lean in volunteer news devices, or is something else going to spring up that's going to you know censor everything and we'll be living in like a dystopian world? I mean, more of a dystopian world. Yeah. <laughs> uh, like I, I mean, I, uh, there's I, whenever I speak to college students, I always ask this question. You know, like how many of you get your news from Instagram and Twitter and Snapchat, and is there some secret thing that's been invented that I don't know about? I, they haven't. They haven't told me about the secret thing that hasn't that they've been using yet. So I don't know what's coming next. But I do think that, um, like, people are getting smarter about news consumption. I think they're getting more deliberate 
about it. Um, I mean, I, I'm I like a bit of an optimist on all this. I guess I had to be because I'm sort of at a new startup. And that's sort of like the news consumer, that there's a universe of people who are smart and curious and who care about uh, these information sources and will seek out good things. You know, we should be happy that the New York Times and the Washington Post are getting tons of subscriptions. Because that means people are sort of deliberately making the effort to say like, no, I care about this kind of content. And, you know, um, and so I'll pay for it, which is an even more amazing thing. And so I think the more the more educated news consumers get, I think the more uh, like the more optimistic I am about that. And I'm sure like whatever, like any there'll be some new platform invented and it'll be overrun by trolls and Russian spies and Nazis, just like everything else. And so we'll probably go through this again. But I think certainly in the last couple of years, we've become more aware that this is a an issue that exists which I think is good for news consumption. Right. It's like that first step into, you know, first step to fixing problems. You got to recognize right. that, that there is one. Absolutely. Yep. I, I'd love to say I knew what the next big thing is, but I'm keeping it a secret. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm holding out for them to, you know, give me a whole lot of options and retire. But the reality is, I think voice assistants are sort of an interesting one, which we're still sort of learning how to tap into use for news. And that be, opens sort of this open conversation around news which is the story is being reported and you could perhaps you know stop the the ai newsreader partway through and go wait a minute tell me a bit more about this oh i want to go down that angle so where people can actually learn and discover and go oh is that stat true can you tell me when when was that last research how big was the sample pool i think education will continue to be important part of that as well for the growth and i'm optimistic about subscription-based news services i think there's anything to be taken out of the past year and a bit out of politics and media in the u.s is that people are prepared to pay for quality news content they see the value in journalism and if we can encourage more people to pay and find more and interesting ways and to pay for news content and that's where apple's acquisition and i forget the name of the company that magazine texture yeah texture yep yeah so if we can sort of work out a netflix style for paying for news content that could be the thing that completely disrupts the market and helps fund quality journalism into the future yeah, and it seems like that is what Apple is looking to do. They're looking to, to bring on the different publishers, develop like that bundled package of news content, and hope to bring that out there. Though so the only the only issue with that apparently is the uh, the thirty percent they charge. Yeah, as as the rev share. So uh, time will tell how uh, how effective like that actually comes. But it's a step, I would say, in in the right direction. Any other uh, points that you guys want to talk about? Any like last minute plugs? Uh, signup.axios.com to join the golden age of newsletters uh, with us. We've got 15. And actually, we have one on media trends, specifically on this topic. We've got a great reporter named Sarah Fisher who really digs into the business side of this and then a lot of the trends on uh, on social media that are impacting media. That's why I sounded so smart, because I read that. I would say I, re- I also read that. So uh, it's uh, awesome. highly recommended to all of our listeners out there. Uh, likewise, I actually love the Media Trends Report. Big fan <laughs> of Sarah Fisher. Uh, I would also encourage people to start using services like Flipboard and play, like playing and teaching the algorithm on that. I think you get a better, less polarizing experience outside of your social media filter bubble. I love it. Well, with that, if you're looking for more great content, please check out ipglab.com. From there, you can subscribe to our newsletter uh follow us on instagram at ipg lab as well as twitter and uh if you like what you hear share tell your friends whatever you can do we greatly appreciate it so thank you and talk soon